Thank you so much, Nazila, for the warm welcome. And indeed, thank you so much for the invitation. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you today. And thank you also to those who joined us today. Considering the Zoom fatigue that we're all experiencing, it means a lot. And I hope that this will be worth your while. I'm really excited for the opportunity to share with you the case of the women in mosques in Turkey and what kinds of questions this case raises about women's human rights and more specifically women's rights to freedom of religion or belief and how international human rights law actually deals with this kind of lesser infringements of uh, women's rights. My presentation is based on the draft article I'm writing for the Religion and Human Rights Journal. My colleague Roja Fazeli and I are co-editing a special double issue for the Religion and Human Rights Journal on women's religious freedom, religion and law, which will be published in 2021. So I will share my presentation with you. I hope this will make it more interesting. So uh, first, a little bit about my interest in this topic. I have been intrigued by the Women in Mosques campaign since its beginning uh, in 2017, not only because it seems such a brave and sincere way of engaging with a practical question, that of the space allowed for women in mosques, but it also spoke volumes about the place uh, of women in mosques. The lived experiences of women who gave their voice to the campaign raised many questions about the relevance of human rights to this issue, and I became interested as a researcher. The case presents a good opportunity to test the effectiveness of human rights law to address what Professor Francis Redai calls the lesser infringements of the lesser infringements. I'll come to this in, in a bit later in the presentation, but I'll just say briefly that the lesser infringements of women's rights uh, based on religious freedom arguments may be considered acceptable under human rights law, largely relying on the autonomy of religious institutions. But it is generally accepted that this is not a blank check. But the question I'm interested in is how and to what extent international human rights law provides the tools to scrutinize this sphere usually uh, afforded an autonomy. And since it's difficult to talk about these things in abstract, talking about it in relation to a specific case provides lots of opportunities to learn. So this is the why uh, for, for this study. And some of the key points I will uh, look at today will be a description of the Women in Mosques campaign or movement. And briefly, uh, we will look at the Turkish legal framework, the applicable uh, aspects of it, and key provisions of international human rights law, and more specifically, freedom of religion or belief and non-discrimination. And I will have some concluding remarks or concluding questions. <laughs> So the website of the Women uh, in Mosques defines it as a campaign that was started by a group of Muslim women with a view to improve the place of women in mosques. So I'm not including any comments in this part of the presentation. I'm just really relaying the information provided in the website and in the social media accounts. 
So since 2017, groups of women meet in mosques to identify the problems that women encounter in mosques and discuss how they could be solved. And the goals uh, seem to be twofold, open the ways for women to more effectively participate in the mosque community. And uh, this includes um, changes or problems related to physical conditions and the social environment. And here you see a picture of a, a typical room that is allocated for uh, women's prayers. It, it's kind of a bit like a storage room, also no view. And yeah, it might be cold. And this is, this is a picture I've taken from the Twitter account of Women in Mosques. And this is a typical way of information sharing for the Women in Mosques, members of uh, this group, that whenever they go to a mosque and see a, a problematic space, they, they post it on, on the Twitter account or other social media venues. So when it comes to the physical conditions, they find that the places that are allocated for women are inadequate and mostly unclean and disorderly spaces are seen fit for women. And not all the mosques have clean, uh, free and open accessible ablution rooms. So needed for the ritual cleansing before the prayers. And where the space, for example, is on the upper floor, uh, upper levels of the mosque, they tend to be, the, the stairs leading up to the room tend to be very steep and narrow, making it hard for the elderly, disabled, and also women with children, difficult to access the room, especially if they have, for example, strollers. And inside the mosque and the mosque community are often not, cannot be seen. And therefore this makes it difficult for the women to feel part of the community, mosque community, and enjoy actually the beautiful hall, prayer hall that uh, the men are uh, enjoying. And you, you, here again in the picture, you can see how it is very much a limited view indeed. And they are also saying that the social environment is uh, problematic and uh, needs improvement. In Turkey, in the mosques, there is usually private security personnel present and they can limit the movement of the women in mosque. For example, they can tell them not to stand here, not to move there, not to talk here, not to sit there or, or go to this specific place. So att their attempts to move within the mosque or see the main assembly hall are often countered with insults or harsh reactions by the men there for their prayers or by the imam or, or by the security staff. And this, as a result, the women feel uneasy uh, in worship and they feel excluded from the mosque community. And they have very specific demands. They would like to see that the mufti offices, which are the responsible for the administration of, a mo uh, of mosques in a given city, they would like the mufti offices to create a centralized complaint mechanism. Uh, they would like to see the mosque staff uh, trained uh, about these issues. And they would like to see um, the reorganization of the mosque's physical capacity to accommodate the whole mosque community, obviously, which includes them. And 
they would like to see the, a rebuilding of a mosque culture that is inclusive and that um, a dialogue is started with those who feel that they are treated unfairly and that they also become uh, a part of the solution. In their third year, they have already had a number of meetings with different muftis and also with the presidency of religious affairs, which is responsible for all the mosques uh, in Turkey. And they have been collecting uh, the complaints and also archiving the experiences of women. And they are in the process of creating a website where women can review different mosques and give them a points in relation to the very different aspects. So a few observations. The women in mosques campaign, the demands, they don't really include a demand to pray in, for example, a mixed group of men and women, or they don't demand uh, to see uh, female imams. So actually their demands are very specific and very much in line with the theological framework that's usually accepted in, in Turkey. And that is men and women uh, pray in se separate sections of the mosque. Yet they still felt the need for this campaign. And the campaign <laughs> indeed was met with mixed reactions. According to the uh, women in mosques website, thousands of women interacted with them and said that uh, the, these demands actually uh, also resonate with them and they they shown solidarity. But they also have been um, criticized a lot. For me, it's interesting to observe that this kind of social activism is coming from a, within a religious community. And it's uh, very much based on religious arguments and a general reference to justice. And also in, an, in many of the articles that one finds on the website, arguments for the women's presence in the mosques is related to the social standing of women in every other aspect of social life. So they would say that women are already present in every aspect of life outside of the mosque and they should also be present in the mosque. And there is no explicit reference to the international human rights law framework. And also the, the members have not made any complaints or have not uh, actually utilized any of the national or international legal remedies. And this, I was really curious about this because I thought that um, actually uh, utilizing uh, human rights uh, discourse would strengthen their case. And when I try to understand why this was not the case, and I spoke to more closer observers to, to the movement, uh, this is what I understand. First of all, they may not be very familiar with the uh, international human rights law framework, and thus it's not within their framework of reference. And they may not know the international human rights compliance control mechanisms, how they work. So they, they are not utilizing them. But also I understand that actually utilizing this kind of discourse could involve some risks. And 
This relates to the alienating factor of international law references. They find that this, as far as I understand, that it may lead to more accusations they might receive from their critics. It, it would be like, oh, this, this group is complaining about us to Europe or to Westerners. So it, it, there is kind of this possibility of being uh, accused. And they also find uh, that maybe this arguing for the women's presence, equal presence in the mosques, with through religious arguments could fill a void because often secular women's groups are using international human rights references for the case of uh, women's rights but it is rare to find that religious arguments are actually put forward for these kinds of issues and they feel that in that sense they might be actually filling a void. I can talk a little bit more about the reactions to this group if that comes up in the questions but uh, now I'll move on to the national law. So in Turkey we have a constitutional protection of freedom of religion or belief and also this right is protected uh, through various provisions in the legislation. The principle of equality uh, before law is protected under article 10 and article 24 protects the right to freedom of conscience and religion. Although the provision in uh, our constitution is much more narrowly defined in comparison to, for example, Article 9 uh, of the European Convention of Human Rights, in the recent years, the Constitutional Court has said that the, the provision will be interpreted in, in line with the European Convention on Human Rights. So it's it actually affords protection to fairly broad range of activities or acts of uh, worship or uh, acts of teaching and observance and practice. And also uh, in the Turkish constitution provides, well, under the Turkish constitution, uh, Article 90 International Human Rights Treaty provisions supersede national law wherever there is a conflict. The presidency of religious affairs is the constitutionally established public body which administers all mosques in Turkey. It has its own law and currently as of end of 2019 there are 89,259 mosques and all mosques have to be administered by the presidency of religious affairs. And also under Turkish criminal code article 115 it's a criminal offense to prevent individuals, individual or collective worship by force or threat or any other unlawful means that would result in prison sentence. And it's also a criminal offense to interfere in and attempt to change the lifestyle, uh, one's lifestyle emanating from their belief, thoughts or convictions. So we see a national protection provided for freedom of worship for everyone. Looking at international provisions, of course, the first uh, and most fundamental principle to start with is the right to freedom of religion or belief is everyone's rights, including women, men, LGBTI plus persons or children. And when this right is uh, restricted, all infringements must be justified uh, in order to be permissible. 
So when restrictions on human rights are scrutinized, provisions related to restrictions need to be applied to both states and uh, religious or belief groups if they have regulatory powers. And it's also important to mention SEDAW and uh, Articles 1 and 2, the Convention on uh, Elimination of All Kinds of Discrimination uh, Against Women. Article 1 describes discrimination and Article 2 provides policy measures that states need to take in a wide range of areas in order to ensure women are not discriminated against. Here, uh, uh, I would like to refer to a number of developments uh, that have taken place in the last few years, uh, looking closer to the interaction between religious freedom, religion, women's rights. So uh, this great report uh, written by Nazila, uh, Women and Religious Freedom, actually um, makes the distinction of harmful practices and lesser infringements. So on the one hand, we know that freedom of religion or belief cannot be used as an argumentation to continue with harmful practices. So this will not be uh, acceptable under international human rights law. And today our case doesn't really deal with uh, harmful practices, but more with what uh, Francis Redeye refers to as lesser infringements. So can freedom of religion or belief be used as the basis for violating other less extreme rights to women's equality? For example, in relation to women's access to places of worship, women's roles within religious communities, or personal status codes that restrict their equality, or obligatory dress codes, for example. And, and this, this is the area that interests me. So the women in mosques, the demands and the problems that the members of the women in mosques encounter if they were to become a legal question, this, this is the area they, they would be located in. So they would be considered this lesser infringements of their freedom of religion or belief. So how to scrutinize lesser infringements? This is the question. And I looked um, at the two reports published by the UN Special Rapporteurs, the one in 2013 by uh, the then Special Rapporteur Heiner Bielefeld looked at uh, freedom of religion or belief and equality between men and women. And when in his report, he looks at these kinds of questions, the kinds of questions that uh, we are dealing with, the, the key interpretive tools seem to be autonomy of a religious institution. So states cannot interfere in the autonomy of a religious institution. So they can determine how the in internal affairs are uh, ordered, which also includes, obviously, uh, how worship is um, structured. And the right to dissent. So everyone should have the right to dissent to the practices within a religious community. And the state has responsibility to protect the dissenters. And the, the other related responsibility is to protect the right of the dissenters to establish a new or religious, new religious or belief communities. But beyond that, it appeared that the autonomy fear seemed fairly broad. 
In the 2020 report of the UN Special Rapporteur Ahmed Shahid, he looked at freedom of religion, our belief, and uh, gender equality. And building up on the 2013 report and adding that when this dissenting uh, is not so straightforward. It can be, it can have very detrimental effects on uh, people who are dissenting or who, who have to leave or their only option, if their only option is to leave the religious community. This is not a very clean cut uh, solution to the problem. So while not really providing a very practical way of dealing uh, with uh, such situations, the special reporter emphasizes that the rights of individuals should be protected even within the groups by creating an enabling environment where dissenters are protected against incitement to violence and, and are able to assert their agency through the exercise of their fundamental human rights, which includes all the range of human rights, basically, including freedom of religion or belief and uh, freedom of expression and freedom from uh, coercion. So how to apply this to the case at hand? This is my last slide and uh, I am I am not offering a, a solution here, but I'm maybe offering different questions. So these interpretive tools, which I mentioned, among others, autonomy, right to exit, protection of dissenters, how would they apply to the case of uh, women in mosques if it were to become a legal case? And also, what does the case of the women in mosques demonstrate in terms of the nature of these tools? Yeah, what does it say about the tools that we have? Are they adequate and practical? There are certainly some safeguards, but also I think the case raises some questions or, or similar cases uh, raise uh, important questions. First, I would like to highlight the impact of the general measures that states have to take in order to eliminate discrimination against women in every area of life, so which comes from the SEDAW Article 2. Because as I said before, the women in mosques members often refer to be women being present in every social area of life outside of the mosque. So they see them in the workplace, they see them in the parliament, they see them in, in the school, everywhere, outside. Uh, so there is a certain freedom that women have achieved outside of the mosque. And this this, in a way, it seems to me, it trickles down or permeates to the religious sphere. So it, it has an impact on the religious sphere without being directly related to the religious um, sphere. So that, that is one thing that seems important to me. Uh, secondly, states have the obligation to protect everyone's right to worship, including access to places of worship. And if there is a different treatment, whether this can be objectively justified, this needs to be shown by states. So if there is um, an obstacle before women accessing places of worship, this is not automatically, this should not be seen in the sphere of autonomy of the religious institution, but there, there needs to be some questions that need to be asked 
to show why this is the case. And this is particularly important in the case of Turkey, I think, because in Turkey, the presence over the places of worship. So the state responsibility is even more in, in the case of Turkey because it is not solely up to the religious communities to determine how individuals or groups access the place of worship. So there is these tensions uh, about access to places of worship, maybe explained by theological considerations about women's place in a mosque and their role in the mosque community between those who have regulatory powers and those who dissent to their position. So both uh, the, the last report of the UN Special Rapporteur refers to autonomy of religious institutions, but I would like to say that actually uh, none of the human rights treaties or provisions refer to autonomy of religious institutions. The Human Rights Committee's uh, general comment 22 refers to freedom in the internal affairs and freedoms related to acts integral to worship. So I, I would refrain from uh, extensively using the term autonomy of religious institutions, which, which sounds a bit rigid to me. I would like to question that and ask whose autonomy we're talking about. It would be more helpful to look at the autonomy of the community and who actually makes up the community. So maybe uh, a bit more scrutiny about the concept of autonomy uh, would help in scrutinizing the um, legitimacy of the infringements. And protecting the dissidents, obviously, this is a very strong safeguard coming from the international human rights provisions. They need to be protected against physical harm, bullying, uh, insults, and threats. And the right to exit needs to be uh, looked at uh, more closely. And this is what I think the, the latest report of the UN Special Rapporteur is uh, highlighting, that this is not seen as a very clean solution as uh, it's it seems in theory there is a positive obligation on the states to ensure that this possibility is a safe possibility and of course training of religious personnel is also and especially in the case of Tur turkey is an important one because again all the imams are trained in the public institutions so there is also a greater positive obligation on the Turkish authorities to ensure that they do not uh, endorse any bullying or insults against dissidents and they understand the, the gender dimension of freedom of religion or belief. And finally, I would like to uh, point to the procedural aspects of decision making within religious communities and here uh, what I mean is when we look at the different cases, and here I'm looking at the women in mosques group, it's possible to see that actually there are ways of participation for women in the administration of mosques, which is disconnected from the religious authority. For example, all the mosques have associations which take care of the mosque or, or are responsible for the physical spaces. And this is not necessarily, um, a although I'm not saying it's a totally secular uh, 
uh, institution, but it, it is distinct from the religious authority. And women can be represented in these associations. So that might be, for example, one other way of including women's voices and uh, demands in the running of place of worship, which then has an impact on the social environment the, the worship um, takes place. As I said, maybe I'm not answering <laughs> the whole, um, I'm not solving the whole puzzle, but I am just raising some more questions about the way autonomy is granted to religious institutions. Maybe this is not so clear in the international human rights provisions that protect freedom of religion or belief for all. Thank you so much for your attention. And over to Nazila. Thank you, Mine. This theme of protest within a religious framework is one that has come up in, in various guises in the seminars we've had over the last 10 years. You perhaps, yes, the puzzle remains because the puzzle has different solutions and approaches and each of them has costs and benefits and a, a variety of audiences and allies. But it's indeed a very intriguing and interesting case that you've described to us. Thank you so much. Uh, Mina, I, I think just the sheer numbers of participants from so many continents speaks to how much we appreciated your topic and the way in which you were able to engage us and how you presented it. It's also interesting that we, we have a very coherent theme through this term and our seminars. So on the 18th of November, also Wednesday at two o'clock, you're very welcome to join Benjamin who also asked the question, Benjamin will be addressing God does not discriminate inclusive mosque politics in France and the UK. So I hope you'll all be able to join us and I hope you'll join a virtual clap of appreciation for Mine and a virtual having a cup of coffee together after the talk. Thank you so much, Mine. Thank you, everybody. Thank you and take care. Thank you very much uh, again for the invitation. I, I...